have not always loved bees as I do now. Even when I was a child, it was butterflies, baby birds, frog spawn, snails and newts that most grabbed my attention. Never bees, apart from bumblebees, that is, which I loved from an early age for their bumbliness and the humming, buzzing sounds they made. It wasn't till many decades later, whilst I was running an environmental journey. You know, as, as, if you put the books down and, and just sit yourself, you take the time to sit yourself and, and just be with, with the bees or, or, or the flowers or whatever, you may not understand why bees are doing what they're doing, but you learn, I've learned so much more by watching the bees. And this is one of the things I wanted to try and get across in my book. It's only after I started to, to research and spend more time with bees that I realised I realised that actually what I needed or wanted to write about was how bees have affected me and what I've learned through bees rather than what I've learned about bees. Hello and welcome to this special interview with bee advocate, wildlife gardener and naturalist Bridget Strawbridge Howard. This episode is part of our Women of the Land series with Chelsea Green Publishing, in which we feature women who are fuelled by their connection with the land to build businesses, garner movements and share their stories. They're standing up for what they know works and crafting a better future for us all. They've kind of opened up this whole new window back back to to the kind of wonder and awe that I remember or we all remember as children. I just can't walk even a few paces, you know, if I see something move and it might be a bee or another insect. I just want to see everything now. The, the book for me, the, the book that I've written, has kind of written itself and it's I've let it go where it will um, and it's taken me into the world of plants and all the other insects and birds and um, and it's made me see things, I, I think I see the bigger picture better now than I would have done if I'd just carried on focusing on bee decline. Bridget's new book, Dancing with Bees, is a love letter to the natural world. She invites us to roam the slopes and woods of the ancient Malvern Hills where she grew up, takes us on an epic journey across the Scottish Highlands to find the great yellow bumblebee, and opens the gate to her allotment for us to meet the clever and cunning cuckoo bumblebee. Since the Second World War, we've lost 98% of our wildflower-rich grasslands in the UK, mainly due to changes in the landscape from intensive farming. At the same time, we've seen devastating declines in wildflower-loving species of ground-nesting birds, butterflies and bees. Some of these are honeybees, but an incredible 96% of all our bee species are solitary bees, and we've been fascinated to get to know these lesser-known pollinators and their importance in a healthy and diverse farming system. In this interview, we learn more about the wonderfully rich and complex world of bees and delve into the many ways we as farmers can support pollinators by encouraging a diversity of crops and foliage. One of the things that really shocked me in, the in your book, Dancing with Bees, was that I was really surprised to learn that there are at least 20,000 different species of bees, and perhaps even more surprised that only nine of those are honeybees. That surprises most people, actually. It was, um, yeah, I was stunned when I realised that. 
Um, and because pe- people people know honeybees, they they know honeybees exist because um, of honey very often, and people are aware. I think of bumblebees, and, and it's just an eye opener when you realise how many bees there are. And I think of those, about two hundred and fifty are bumblebees. I'd never even heard of solitary bees. Really, God! But but you're not the only one. It, it's that this is one of my aims in what I do, and something that's become my overriding mission has been to make people aware that it is not all about honeybees. In fact, you know, I had someone visit our our garden. We sell plants outside the house, and people knock on the door, and and if they want to know a little bit more, I sometimes take them into the garden, and a very very intelligent, well educated gardener, um, young woman came into the garden last week, and I showed her a particular plant. I think it was um, purple loosestrife or something, and there were bumblebees and honeybees on it, and she said, "Wow!" She said, "Is that is that bee pointing to the honeybee? Is that a baby one of that one, pointing to the bumblebee?" So, so that makes me realise how very little um, we collectively know about the world of bees. And that's one of the things I really love in the book is like the way you really bring bees to life. Like even just thinking that bees have tongues. Yes, I know. <laughs> and they're called, it's, it's, I've always um, been confused as to whether they are proboscis or proboscises or proboscis, I don't know what the plural is, proboscis or tongues, but, but I think they are called tongues and they're, they don't, they're not, they don't act like straws as such, the, tonguey, the, the honeybee's tongue. They kind of um, saturate and absorb the nectar um, from plants and uh, now I hope I can get this right so the length of tongues of bees in the United Kingdom Great Britain and Ireland for instance vary between about um, 0.5 millimeters to 15 millimeters and just to put this in perspective honeybee tongues are about 6.3 millimeters so they're relatively small whereas some of our bumblebees have tongues, just a few of our bumblebees, that are so long that they're about the same length as the bumblebee's body. So yeah. so this means you've got different bees. You start to think, ah, that's interesting. So different flowers are suitable for different length tongues or different sized bees. The tiniest bee um, that, that we have just outside our front door at the moment on our harebells so it's something called a campanula bee it's a solitary bee and it's way smaller than a grain of rice Um, yeah and it's black and you just would think it's a small flying insect of some sort if you even registered it and it is the bee that you will see in um pretty little blue harebells and and all the the larger campanula and if you if you compare that to a huge queen bumblebee it's difficult to believe that they are all bees the colors vary you know there's there's like this little black one and there's i mean everybody knows the black and yellow and white white striped bumblebees but but bumblebees come in many different colors as well and then in in the tropics so i've never seen them but i've seen i've seen photographs and videos um we've got orchid bees and sweat bees and they are like jewels. They're like Fabergé jewels and they come in all the colours of the rainbow. And some of them are metallic. So metallic ruby red and emerald green bees. This is a vast, vast world. And I mean, I'm just really at the tip of the iceberg. I just, you know, I'm just running around a bit like a headless chicken trying to get to know them all. And 
just really thinking, do you know what? I'm just going to focus on the ones in my garden because that's easier. <laughs> At many points in the book, you talk us through different landscapes and ecosystems, um, how bees and pollinators are making their home there. Um, and I felt what I got from that was like it's not always obvious. Um, and, it, and there's this whole world that many of us are unaware of that you've really gone through and discovered. Um, and so it'd be amazing, you know, like what are the first steps that we can do to start to reconnect with bees? You know, what should we look out for in our gardens uh, or on the farm, you know? How can we start that journey? Sometimes when I um, do talks and it's a daytime talk and there's there's a garden outside, um, I take take people out on little bee walks. This is where the difference between um, learning to identify with a chart, which is important, but then actually thinking it doesn't matter if you don't get the right name for the right bee. It's watching them. Then start listening to them. Start listening to their buzzers. and, And you notice that the big bees make you know the huge great big queen bumblebees have a really deep really deep buzz and some of the um so there's a bee called a hairy footed flower bee hairy footed flower bee is another of my favorites and it's got a really high sort of high buzz and so if you notice different buzzers um and then notice that um with plants like poppies if you have poppies or open cup-shaped plants you might have a big bumblebee flying in with its deep buzz but when it gets to the poppy um, it, it the buzz changes to a high pitch like a dentist drill sound and so you think wow the change there's a change in the sound um, why is that what's happening um, and actually it's it's that's buzz pollination there or buzz foraging there they're disconnecting their wings inside um, their bodies and buzzing 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 so they're vibrating the the wing muscles the flight muscles inside the bodies but without flapping the wings and that's how they release the pollen from that plant so there's all these things that I've learned because I've watched and seen um, and then you'll notice um, things like um, bees that are asleep in the flower at the end of the day and they haven't gone back to their home um, and they're male bumblebees because they're not allowed back in once they once they leave the nest. So you think, oh, there are bees that sleep inside flowers. Um, it's just, it really is just going out and making the time to sit. Uh, and we don't do that. We we we're just rushing around too much. We're too busy, all of us. And if you make the time to sit, um, and for me. Firstly, you you learn more about bees, but then of course the other thing is you you it's almost meditative, and you forget everything. You forget all the things that were bothering you um, when when you left the house. Um, I mean, I sometimes actually forget that I've got something boiling on the cooker. It's just stepping inside the bees' world, leaving your own world behind, and 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 allowing some kind of a connection. Of course, they're not connecting with you you can connect with them. Um, And I wonder on a farm level, at a farm scale, you know, if you were to design a bee-friendly farm, what what might that look like? Could you describe what it might look like? If I were to um, inherit a small holding tomorrow, 
Um, I would plant fruit trees galore. I would plant so many apples. Um, I'd I would fill the hedgerows with um, flowering with hawthorn, blackthorn. Um, I would look at larger on a landscape um, scale for trees. I would be looking at the flowering trees. So horse chestnut is is a good one. Um, so, so I'd be looking. So so starting outwards, I guess I'd look at trees coming down to hedgerows. Um, I'd be looking at um, if if I was wanting to use a green manure, I would mm-hmm. be looking. All of the clovers are fantastic clovers. All of the clovers, vetches, alfalfas, and phacelia. If if I had, because we do this on our allotment, so I'm thinking you'd probably scale up on a farm scale what we have on our allotment. Um, and whenever we have a patch um, that we're just going to leave with nothing in it for a while, we fill it with phacelia. Um, and phacelia is is a plant that um, flowers between wow between about May and October, and it's an absolute magnet not just for bees. Um, we're talking about bees here, but of course it's it's about more than bees as well. Not just honeybees, not just the twenty thousand bee species, but all pollinators and all insects. So phacelia is a magnet for beneficial um, insects as well as being a green manure itself. Um, so 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 yeah, I'd be looking at um, a macro and micro. I'd be looking at the at ground cover and and shrubs and trees and hedgerows. I'd be looking at it all and I'd be looking to have a variety of different types of blooms um, thinking okay we need all this this the diversity of all these different bees so um, different shaped blooms so um, so so trumpets and bowls um, and bells um, and then then the flatheads or not forgetting all the the carrot family that they're, they're really great for hoverflies and all the short-tongued bees um, so yeah and, and a succession and on a farm level you would be planting things in clumps um, in, if you have a very small garden, for instance, people often um, it, it, it's a mistake to to put a um, a poppy here and a poppy there, um, and then a sunflower here and a sunflower there. If you clump your flowers of the same um, species together, then there's less energy for the bee that is out foraging on sunflowers if it can go to all the sunflowers in one go, rather than having to use its precious energy to fly to another part of the garden. Uh, and that's kind of what you do on a farm um, scale, wouldn't you, anyway? Honeybees and bumblebees are um, social bees, so they live in colonies. They communicate, they cooperate, um, they have overlapping generations and kind of a caste system. So they'd have a queen and workers, all females, and males um, that, that really only exist to mate. And, and when the queen lays eggs, she is still alive when the eggs hatch. So there are overlapping generations. So that's that's the social bees in a nutshell. But the, the solitary bees, um, they come in varying degrees of solitary and sociality it's quite complex but if you think of them as a single mum that that's the best way to think of them say if I take one particular type of solitary bee um, the ashy mining bee which is really easy to identify it makes its nest in the ground and so each single adult female 
once she's mated, digs her own little burrow into the ground and she provisions each little um, compartment. She makes little compartments and she provisions each compartment herself with a little bit of pollen and then she lays an egg and seals it and she'll do that, oh, I don't know, say between 10, 20, 30 times. Um, and then she dies. She, she, that's her life ended. So she's alive for, ooh, about six weeks, maybe, between six and eight weeks. Um, and that is, so that's a true solitary bee. She doesn't interact or cooperate with any of the other bees around her. There may be lots of other ashy mining bees making their nests all around her in the same little patch of soil. She is independent of them. And the only interaction she has with any others um, of her particular species is with the, the males when she mates with them. So, so it really is like being a single mother. If you went out into your garden today um, and you were looking for a solitary bee, I mean, is the best place to look near the soil or...? In, in the soil and in the grass, you'd look for little, tiny little holes or little, oh, like miniature molehills that, that would, like excavations, and you'd think, oh, there's something's digging there, and you, you probably would think it's an ant, but actually it could be a solitary bee. But far, far easier is... You, have you heard of bee hotels? They're very often drilled um, holes in pieces of wood, which are n- not so great, but that's a whole other issue, which we may may be able to talk about later. But bamboo tubes. So if you've got lots and lots of um, empty tubes of bamboo, and say they're about, oh, six inches long, and they're gathered together in a bundle, or they're inside a tube of some sort, and those sort of empty tubes will attract mason bees and leaf cutter bees and just outside our front door we've got a a bee hotel um, and leaf cutters are using it at the moment and I I watch them for hours very very close up because they're not dangerous these solitary bees most of them don't have a sting the ones that do really don't use them they honestly you'd have to be really a manhandle it to 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 cause it to sting you so I watch them so so you've got a tube and um, the first you know that something's going on is you see a bee flying in and out of the tube and you think whoa there's a bee going in and out of the tube and and it's carrying a piece of leaf underneath it a rolled up piece of leaf and then they'll they'll go and get some more leaves and they'll line a little bit more pollen another egg block it off and then make another cell Um, and then they come to the very very end of the, the the tube and they collect maybe 20 little pieces of perfectly cut um, circles of leaf to block the end off. So that's how you see them. Those are the most visible. They are very highly visible solitary bees. And anyone who puts up a bee hotel, um, you know, using bamboo tubes or lots of people, you, you can use cardboard tubes as well, carefully made cardboard tubes that are lined with paper. And if you put them in, kind of south facing positions or west or east facing positions you will see these bees and and then you you can watch the whole life cycle play out and it's fascinating i remember in your book you described the the red-tailed mason bee as your favorite bee in the world oh yeah that's (laughs) that is so everything i've just described the red-tailed mason bee and her, her her sort of scientific name is osmia bicolor um, and she does all of that, but she does it inside snail shells. So, you know, you, you see these abandoned snail shells lying around your garden 
Um, and if you're if you're growing the right plants and you're in the right area, they may just be reused by the red-tailed mason bee who does exactly the same. She puts a bit of pollen in it, lays an egg, blocks it off, and then I say it in the book why she's my favourite because she just does so much more. Um, you know, so the ones in the bee hotels um, stick a load of leaves at the edge or a load of mud, but she turns the so she fills the snail shell with little bits of oh gravel or pebbles or shells or or little bits of um, debris and then she collects more leaves and she chews them up and she makes like a pesto um, and spits lots of bit of pesto inside the the shell so she fills it up with a plug of pesto then she turns it upside down so the entrance is facing the ground covers it with a bit more pesto and, then, and the reason she's my favourite bee on the planet is she then goes and she collects about uh, up to about a hundred pieces of dried grass that are maybe three, four times the length of her body. And she flies back and forth with these pieces of dried grass and she thatches the shell. She's often called the, the um, snail thatching bee. Um, and she basically is covering the shell little pieces of dried grass and nobody knows exactly why she does this except it kind of sounds uh, to us to humans it sounds pretty obvious that she's maybe camouflaging it disguising it so nobody will see it um but we know from from watching this that the grass blows away a few days later so it doesn't stay there but but this is this is just one bee this one little bee doing all that work um you know and, and Oh, we take it so much for granted. And these, by the way, none of these solitary bees make honey. So, so it's only honeybees that make honey. Um, these solitary bees don't store honey. And if you think there's 20,000 different bees and they all have different ways of doing this, it's mind-boggling. Just mind-boggling. the start of the book, you talk quite a bit about colony collapse disorder and, and how that was one of the reasons you became interested to understand more about bees. And I, I was particularly intrigued to hear that, I, well, I just love this idea that bees ferment the pollen before eating it and some of the links to fungicide use and how that could potentially affect this. So, so we know that the bees collect nectar to make um, honey. They collect pollen to feed their young. And the thing with the pollen is that it can't be fed to the bees in its raw state to the to the um the larvae in its raw state it needs to be fermented um, to make it palatable and digestible and one of the most important ingredients apart from enzymes that the bee produces um herself the adult bee the females produce themselves is that that the natural wild yeasts so you think okay that's that's all great you understand that but then you start thinking well what about um, the fungicides that are used. We know that um, insecticides um, are are dangerous and herbicides, um, you know, take out lots of the plants they feed on. But r- not many people have made the link between um, the need for bee- bees to use natural yeasts to ferment the pollen and the use of fungicides. And it seems so obvious to me that if there are fungicides in the area and if the bees are going to bring fungicides into their hive, we're talking honeybees, 
here, then they are going to be interrupting the natural process um, by which they need to ferment their pollen um, by destroying perhaps the natural yeasts that are around inside the hive. You know, I, I work a little bit in winemaking um, on my family's farm and that has uh, relevant links in terms of in the vineyard industry. Um, you it's very difficult to make a natural wine if you've been using fungicides in the vineyard because there aren't enough natural yeasts around to really cause the fermentation of the wine in the same way. And I'll tell you, the person who, because um, I had a conversation with um, a friend of mine, Phil Chandler, and Phil Chandler um, is a, a natural beekeeper. He's the person who has more or less pioneered the concept of natural beekeeping, certainly in in Great Britain and Ireland. He was he's the one who told me about this link between the fungicides and the um, the breaking down, the fermenting of pollen. Uh, and it's very interesting that having looked into it, as I say, there's not an awful lot of research out there. Um, although you, you've just said quite clearly it's well known with wines, it's not something I people I think people um, link with with bee decline or with problems with bees. But it is a problem. It's quite clearly. Another thing, um, when I read your book, there were lots of little anecdotes um, that I remember noticing as a child. And but you know, you kind of since then I've forgotten about them. Um, and one of them in particular was what a bumblebee does when you're getting too close to it. You read the books, you learn stuff from the books and the papers, and then you start watching the bees in your garden. Um, and I would notice that um, because I use my camera a lot to take lots and lots of macro photographs of bees, if I got too close to a bee. Um, very often, well, mostly they fly off, um, but sometimes they lift their middle leg up, um, and and I so I think, oh, that's interesting. Um, and the more I watched this, the more I noticed it. If I backed off again, the middle leg would come down, and if I go forward again, the middle leg comes up again. Um, and it turns out that this is the bee posturing, and it's warning you. It's lifting its leg up, and if you go really, really close, it lifts two middle legs up, and then it'll roll on its back and show you, it, show you its sting. Um, and this is it warning you. It's, it's, it's saying, um, I've got a sting. I, I am capable of stinging you. I will sting you. Uh, but I now know that bees only do this if they haven't got the energy to fly off. So their first choice would be to fly away. You know, they, they don't want um, to hang around if we get too close. But if they haven't had enough nectar or it's too cold, they can't fly, they're just politely saying that you're getting too close, you're making me a bit nervous, I could sting you. Oh, I see videos on the internet, it's ridiculous, on YouTube where every now and then the same video flies around again. And people think, people say, hey, look, you know, there's a bee, it's, it's high-fiving me. And it's so not high-fiving you. Um, but but that's, that's what people think they're doing, they're sticking up their, their little leg to high-five you. Bridget's book brings the world of pollinators alive. We become submerged in a complex web of insects going on their busy way, feeding themselves, their communities, and thankfully, ensuring the flora all around us offer up its fruits for another year. Whilst reading the book and talking to Bridget, it became overwhelmingly obvious that once again, we humans have gravely oversimplified nature. In this instance, the life of bees due to our desire for honey. European honeybees are just one of the 20,000 different bee species on Earth. In the UK, there are 19 native bee species on the Biodiversity Action Plan list. Six of those are bumblebees, and the rest are solitary bees. Turns out, 
Bringing many more honeybees into an area can be detrimental to native bee populations, as the honeybees outcompete native wild bees for foraging resources. It's something we just hadn't considered. And who knew that bees ferment their pollen before feeding it to their young, or emit antifreeze to protect themselves in winter? So cool. <laughs> Once again, we are humbled by the complex systems out there. And Dancing with Bees awakened us to a new world where we are reminded that diversity is key. Bridget inspires us all to get in action where the first step is just to start noticing our pollinator friends and the rest will follow. It's the curiosity, the, the wonder and the awe that we all had as children. The word reconnection is um, um, a buzzword, but but if you start with without needing to rush it, start with the noticing, and then ask questions. The rest will come. It does come. It, it's it's just reigniting that something inside us that that is and was and could be wild again. This Farmarama podcast is brought to you by Chelsea Green Publishing, the leading publisher of books on sustainable food and farming, including Dancing with Bees by Bridget Strawbridge Howard. Contact your local bookshop, favourite online retailer, or go to chelseagreen.com for more details. Dancing with Bees is also available as an audiobook. This show was made by Abby Rose, Joe Barrett, and Hannah Sutherland. Community support is by Annie Landless, Olivia Oldham, Analyzer Jenkins, and our theme music is by Owen Barrett.